It's Thursday, September 16th. Welcome to Real Talk. This episode of the show is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well, planet Earth's very first ever publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. I was talking to a guy a while back, a real talker by the name of Michael. And he was like, you know, there's a lot of talk about Bitcoin, but but what about Ethereum? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, is, is that on their radar at Bitcoin? Well, I said, yeah. I said, as a matter of fact, I've been talking to Adam O'Brien about that, the founding CEO of Bit, about, about Ethereum and, and, and all of the other things that swirl around in that crypto space. And, and Michael said, you know what? He said, knowing that Bitcoin well is not necessarily opposed to chatting about Ethereum makes me more likely to talk to somebody at Bitcoin well. And I was like, yeah, man, that's the whole deal. It's a great resource for people that are trying to sort out something that can seem so complicated. But once you get it, you kind of get it. And then whammo, you'll find Bitcoin well under the sponsors tab on our website, RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So what do you want to talk about? A lot to get into this morning. Sarah Hoyle's looking at me through the plexiglass. You're such a smart ass. Such a smart ass. There's a lot to get get into today, and and uh, we're having one of those mornings. Why not go? Why not pull back the curtain a little bit and let everybody know? There's a lot of moving parts this morning, and so Hoyles might not be on camera as much as she typically would be because we're sorting things out behind the scenes, including working with. Uh, as as they pronounce it, Christia Freeland's team. Christia Freeland's going to join us uh, this morning. Obviously, a liberal candidate out of Ontario, uh, former deputy prime minister. Of course, now that they're on the campaign trail, they surrender these these titles. And so she's a candidate for the liberals out of Ontario and certainly high profile member of that uh, cabinet when they were forming that minority government. They're hoping to form a majority government. Is it going to happen? I'll ask her point blank. I'm not sure how she'll answer that question, but but there's some some stuff we want to get into, including, as you know, the ethics commissioner that that essentially I think uh, I, I don't say gave her a pass. That's a that would might be a, a weird way to phrase it. But the the uh, the uh, ethics commissioner essentially cleared her of wrongdoing. Right. With with regards to this tweet that they released that was flagged by Twitter as manipulated media. But I'm not sure that the ethics commissioner clearing her on it accomplishes what you might hope to have accomplished within public opinion. Once public opinion is formed on something, you notice this all the time. Uh, News outlets, for example, like newspapers will print something about someone, uh, most especially in like an editorial or an op ed. And and then, you know, a couple of days later, there's this little retraction that's printed on, you know, page eight and it's buried down there two inches at the bottom of the page. You know, so we regret the error in well, the damage has been done. So how damaging is this to her? We'll ask the backstory. How did that come about? The video, if, if you don't remember, I know there's a lot going on. They clipped conservative leader Aaron O'Toole talking about health care. And in particular, public versus private health care. And, and they cut out the part where Aaron O'Toole essentially said, yeah, and there's got to be a, a robust public system. But he was talking about investment and generating revenue and creating options within a private delivery system. And then the liberals essentially asserted Aaron O'Toole wants to privatize health care. And it kind of blew up in their face 
to be quite honest. I mean, in layperson's terms, it blew up in their face. So we'll talk to Christia Freeland about that. Uh, we've got doctors coming on today. We've got Dr. Uh, Kirsten Feist will join us, an epidemiologist, to follow up on our conversation with Dr. James Talbot yesterday about triage. This is uh, an important conversation to be had once a healthcare system gets overwhelmed, in particular, you know, ERs, ICUs, they start to make decisions about who receives care, who gets those spots in the ICU. And it can be bad news for people who may not stand uh, as fighting of a chance uh, to get past whatever they're dealing with. It's something that Albertans are grappling with right now because we are in a state of emergency. As Alberta's premier declared yesterday, literally Alberta declaring a public state of emergency. When it comes to health care, we're going to be talking today as well uh, with uh, you heard Dr. Ray Dionandon on the show before. And we're going to get into this mu variant. You're going, hang on a second. There's another one. <laughs> is this a new name for Delta? No, no, this is another one. This is a new one. It's already in B.C., Ontario. Maybe it's where you are. Who knows? We're finding out. We wanted to talk to Dr. Ray Watt Dionandin coming up. Uh, that'll be in about, uh, you know, call it 40 minutes from now. And so uh, we want to make sure that you have all the information that you need to know what's going on. Alberta's public health restrictions back into effect now. Uh, a new program. It's not a vaccine passport, but it is a restriction exemption program. We're going to get into this, including your emails, what you've been sending us. Uh, I really appreciate the engagement. I think we knew what to expect when the premier uh, addressed Albertans uh, last night around six o'clock mountain time. Uh, our inbox started heating up right away, and we're going to get into what you have to say on that. But we lead off today, as we have every day this week, with an extended and special edition of Positive Reflections, typically presented by our friends at Kubi Energy. It was Tanya who reached out on Monday and said, our dear friend Julie Rohr, and if you're listening from another part of the country or if maybe you're not familiar with the name, you can go on Twitter and search the hashtag. We love Julie Rohr, R-O-H-R, a dear friend of the show, a member of our editorial board uh, is quite literally fighting for her life right now. A, a rare form of cancer. She's in palliative care. She is a remarkable human and a force of nature. And she has been inspiring thousands of people and, and, and drawing and gleaning the attention and the adoration uh, of so many people, including celebrities like Ryan Reynolds and Colin Mockery. And I, I saw yesterday, I can't even remember. I feel like a real jerk. I can't remember his real name, but you know, people of my vintage in Canada know Joey Jeremiah. I can't remember his real name. I feel like a real jerk right now. His but real name is Joey something. Is it? Joey Jeremiah did a video for her uh, from Degrassi, from Zit Remedy. And it was just this amazing, you know, did I already say Colin Mockery? I think I did. There's just been all these videos. Chantel Kriviasik played them a, a private concert, Julie and her husband. I mean, it's just been amazing to see we were so proud to announce the Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship, and uh, we're going to have details on that in the months to come. Um, the wheels are turning behind the scenes. Julie has worked with us on this, and um, we're really honored to be able to be a part of it. We have a golf tournament coming up next June to fund it, but a good friend of this show, celebrated sculptor Slavo Chech, reached out. And thought that there was something he could do to kickstart this scholarship fund. And before I say hello to Slavo, it's a tweet that uh, you put up uh, just the other day, my friend. This is yesterday morning. You said, created with love and admiration for Julie Rohr. This small sculpture is being auctioned. 100% of the proceeds are going to the new Julie Rohr scholarship announced on Real Talk. The auction's open now, Slavo. You closed it at 6 o'clock yesterday afternoon. 
And <laughs> I'm not sure if you or anybody saw this going where it did. Um, before we talk about the dollar amount that you raised, which is still just absolutely blowing my mind, let me officially welcome you to the program. Uh, I hope you can feel the love and energy coming from our studio to you right now, because we're so thrilled to have you involved in this. How did this all come nice. about? Why, why, Julie? Why the sculpture? Why did you decide to make this happen? Well, I mean, Julie's a part of this community and I mean, she's just a force of nature and uh, behind the scenes a couple of years ago, uh, I was not struggling with confidence, but I was, I was searching for a new series and uh, I put out a, a work in progress tweet saying, I'm kind of unsure about this. And then and Julie responded shortly and she said, oh my God, this is, this is beautiful. It reminds me of a beautiful chaos. And I just, it struck me to the core and I, I, sent out a message to her. I said, would you do me the honor of, you know, accepting this gift? And she graciously did. And um, I just, at that point, had the confidence um, to continue on with the series to rounding success. So I wanted to to have this kind of come full circle by creating this small sculpture and sort of kickstarting this this campaign of her scholarship. So we're keeping an eye on it and it goes to a thousand, then it goes to 1200 and then it jumped to two grand. And then, yeah. I, and then and I'm doing the show live. And so I sent you a text and I was like, hey, are we still at two grand? You sent me a text back and it jumped to thirty five hundred. And uh, and then all of a sudden and then all of a sudden things really sudden. started to happen. Can, can you clarify? So so you have your high bidder at thirty five hundred. He goes on the record, says if somebody will match it, I'll bump it to five. All of a sudden there's yeah. another five. What happened, Slavo? Uh, just the floodgates opened with the the love and outpouring for for Julie scholarship. And um, so two other people stepped up when he, you know, when you put the tweet out saying, is there any, anyone out there willing to, to match this? And two other people stepped up. You and know, so can I tell you something, Slavo? We, I skate on Wednesdays. I was playing shinny and I get off the ice. It's five fifty one, I think it was, or something like that. When I looked at my phone, I was like, there's almost no time left in this auction, but yeah. just as a, just as a last ditch, Let's see if anybody wants to match. And and all of a sudden it gets this auction gets to 15 grand. That was a brilliant stroke to do that, Ryan. Well, no, 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 I'm no, 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 no. I'm not saying no, I'm not saying me. I'm saying there. I'm saying that there was almost no time left. And then all of a sudden this thing just ramped up even further. So this means now that are you committing? I'm assuming you're committing to do a couple more sculptures then. So I, I reached out to each of the donors and uh, they had sort of expressed their desire for that original sculpture to go to Julie and her family, which was, I mean, just another level of their generosity. But I thought I can't, I can't leave that at that. I mean, that level of generosity needs to be celebrated. And uh, so I reached out to them and said, look, at, I'm going to create three more sculptures, one for each of you. And uh, I thought that level of commitment just needs to be praised. Absolutely incredible. And so this scholarship fund gets a kickstart with fifteen thousand dollars 24 hours after it was announced. Um, I, I'm gonna, right. I mean, I'm just going to be talking to you about this for the rest of our days on planet Earth, Slavo. But you've already <laughs> got something else going on as well. Tell us about these beautiful pendants, because I know there's going to be real talkers. There's going to be people that are really yeah. interested in getting involved on this if they can get in. I know there's limited supply. So continuing with the uh, the beautiful chaos theme, um, I created a, a line of pendants in copper and jewelry. And uh, basically this morning, we're going to open it up that uh, I'll take orders until uh, Friday at 4 p.m. And I've got some already made and uh, there's um, 
Julie's close friends and neighbors and book club pals uh, contacted me and they've already committed to 15 for the group and they've, they've paid for them already. And uh, people within my circle reached out to me already. And so there's, there's already a total of about 30 committed to this and I can see this possibly getting to 50. So that would mean another five grand to, to the scholarship. A $20,000 contribution to this scholarship fund. So Slavo, if uh, how much are you selling the pendants for and how do people order them if they want to get involved? So I'll put out a tweet. Um, the best way in order for me to keep organized is for when I put out the tweet is for people just to direct message me. That way I can kind of keep it all in, in, in check in terms of who gets what. Um, so the pendants either in the copper or the silver will be priced at uh, $200 each with $100 from each one going directly to Julie's scholarship. And I want to be clear uh, that you're uh, you're obviously covering your costs on this because yeah. my understanding is, uh, can you explain to us as a sculptor, you're actually using some pretty expensive material, if I understand correctly. It's it's the, a large portion of that that is, is the material cost for sure. So it's a, so, I mean, it's a beautiful, high quality pendant that you're designing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Slav. Uh, so people want to follow you or contact you on Twitter. It's at Slav underscore metal urges. Um, just let me ask you, we've been having conversations. I've, I've literally every show this week been kicking off with emails that people are writing us about Julie and the impact that she's had on them, the impact that she's yeah. had on, quite frankly, on on Twitter and on public dialogue and all these things. She is she has become a, sort of, I would almost say, an icon to many people. Um, let me ask you about, you know, what you've been observing and, and, and how it's been resonating with you, this outpouring of support for her, these messages. This isn't. I said to her husband the other <laughs> Slavo, I said to her husband the other day, I, I said, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. I have I have not seen anything like this either, Ryan. It's just incredible the amount of uh, um, friends gathering around her, circling her, enveloping her with love and then sending that out to the universe and, and the universe basically sending that love right back to her. It's just incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And it's just beautiful to witness and, and be a small part of it as well well slavo i am uh forever grateful um you know you will be my guest at the first annual real talk golf tournament that'll be on june 23rd of 2022 uh in support of this scholarship fund i'm so grateful for your con what can i even say man twenty thousand dollars to kick it off Th this means that that post-secondary students that, that essentially kids young adults that have lost a parent to cancer aren't going to have to worry about how they're going to pay for their post-secondary school. And uh, you've done an amazing job. I want to say in the context of what everything else we're talking about today, you've given it a real shot in the arm, if I can, Slavo. So thanks for Thank that, my much, brother. Man. Forever grateful. That's Slavo Chech. Uh, just an absolutely amazing uh, talent, an amazing sculptor. Of course, you'll remember when we isolated, when the show isolated, when it was Sam and I and Sam, we had had a, a covid contact near us and we were taking the necessary precautions and I was doing the show from home. You may remember there was a there was a week at Real Talk book ended by weekends. We had that 10 days where I was at home um, doing the show from my dining room table and there was a Slavo Chech sculpture right behind me. And I'll never forget how many people were reaching out being like, what is that sculpture? Where did you get that sculpture? And that was our family's uh, pandemic gift to ourselves based on prairie grasses from his his series. It was a covid-19 series, Sarah, that he put together called Bent Not Broken. And the sculptures were, were uh, you know, sort of inspired by these prairie grasses under the weight of the snow that were bent but not broken. We're going to talk about pandemic restrictions. We'll talk about the announcements uh, in Alberta. First of all, uh, I wanted to remind you, though, that this a really neat opportunity. You don't even have to be a sports fan 
to take advantage of this coming down to Commonwealth Stadium in Edmonton the 25th and the 26th of September presented by Explore Edmonton Rugby Sevens is touching down first in Vancouver and then again at Commonwealth Stadium. HSBC Canada Sevens venue BC Place and Commonwealth Stadium as Edmonton plays host September 25th and 26th. Your chance to grab your costumes, get dressed up. As you can see, everybody has a blast. An absolute blast. Seven players aside, seven-minute halves. This isn't some long, sleepy, boring game that's hard to understand. At Canada7s.com, you can learn more about this amazing event, a dynamic, high-octane style, a festival-like atmosphere. Plus, this could be a one-off. This event was supposed to go to the UK, but they had to redirect it. Edmonton got it, which is super exciting. I know for the team at Explore Edmonton, your chance to check it out could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at Canada7s.com. Also, big shout-out to our friends at Westworld Computers. You can find them on at westworld.ca online right now. They're hiring, as a matter of fact. If, If you find a fit... You love Apple products, but you don't fit yourself into that big white box. You don't want to work in the mall. You want to work for an independent family-owned business that's been around for more than 40 years. Whether it's sales and service, whether you're a repair tech, whether you'd like to work for them in marketing, they're hiring right now. You can email employment at westworld.ca. We're getting a a ton of uh, comments right now on the announcement that was made uh, yesterday by the Alberta government, and we're going to be talking about this through today's show. We're keeping an eye on our email inbox. You can be in touch with us to talk at ryanjesperson.com anytime. And of course, Sarah Hoyles is monitoring our hashtag as well that's powered by Park Power to Real Talk RJ. We're going to talk about what it means for you. We're going to get into whether or not the government ate crow as much as people believed it should. We'll get into a non-apology from Alberta's premier and more. Uh, Don't forget, Eat Your Words, presented by Prairie Catering, is coming up too. We cannot overlook the fact that there's a federal election on Monday as well. As mentioned, Christia Freeland will join us uh, later on in the show, a liberal candidate out of Ontario. And and right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to the program a political strategist, uh, uh, Shakir Chambers, principal at Earnscliffe Strategy Group. He's done a ton of work across the country. Uh, It's really nice to have you joining us this morning, Shakir. Thanks for making time and welcome to Real Talk. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. You feeling you feeling like this election's sneaking up on you a little bit, or has this felt like this kind of long trudging haul? Where are you at with it? <laughs> I mean, it's just the shortest election we can have, right? Thirty six days. So I've been involved uh, since uh, August fifteenth. Uh, can't wait to get to the finish line. Uh, happy there's only what three more days left. I think most folks just want this to be over. This is an election. I think most people didn't want. When you go door knocking, a lot of voter apathy. Even when you talk to some friends who are not really politically active, they just they don't even really know what's going on. They just want to either not cast their ballot or just get to the finish line, just move on and get back to the real life, uh, real life situations. Are you formally working on a campaign right now? No, not at all. Uh, I, I talked to a few folks door knock. Um, I talk to the war room every now and then, but not uh, actively working formally on any campaigns. OK, you've been you've worked, though. You've you've advised uh, provincial leaders, uh, government of Ontario. You've advised conservative leaders formerly in the federal government. How would I want to ask you how you would assess how the campaigns have been run thus far? But but first of all, I want to ask you if you think that voter turnout is going to be affected by this kind of malaise or this exhaustion or maybe even confusion how do you think that's all going to play out on Monday? 
We'll see. I mean, advanced polls are pretty high numbers, close to 6 million people coming out to advanced polls. I suspect that's more because of COVID measures. Folks don't want to be crowded in, in, in ballot uh, voting rooms and whatnot. But I think come eating, ah, geez, is there, is there the motivation there? I'm not so sure. I think a lot of people just, listen, they want to get back to their daily lives, um, not really engage in this in this election. And I would say when it was called, uh, what, was, what was the line used? It's the most important election since 1945. I don't think any leader has given voters out there a reason to make this the most important election. A lot of the promises we've heard are, are promises we've heard before. I mean, listen, child care is on the table. I understand that. But uh, the carbon stuff, uh, the environmental stuff, I mean, there's nothing really new and exciting in this election. So I'm not so sure we're going to see this groundswell of people coming in to cast ballots. Um, and I, I think if it's a low voter turnout, I do think it helps the conservatives because they usually have a reliable base that's, that's pretty motivated to come out uh, uh, election after election. So we'll see what happens. But I don't expect these these high, high numbers of turnout. Uh, let me ask you, Shakir, yesterday, uh, Alberta's government yesterday evening announcing a restriction exemption program. Uh, Premier Jason Kenney uh, essentially acknowledging that they had paid attention to other jurisdictions based on vaccine numbers, thought they could essentially open Alberta and have the best summer ever. And it kind of blew up in their face. So now amid a really strained healthcare system, income measures, again, effective midnight last night, or I guess technically today, they're back in effect. There's word on the street, and we're hearing rumblings, but I want to hear it from a horse's mouth, and we haven't yet, that the O'Toole camp is pretty choked with uh, Premier Kenny right now, that they believe that this could hurt their chances, or at least essentially their support as the federal election approaches on Monday. What would you read into that? Can you see that being a realistic scenario? Um, I, I can see it hurting in the sense of, I mean, you know, O'Toole's position, people have choice. Uh, if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can use rapid testing. But I'd also say we're, what, 18, 19 months into this pandemic. If you have a view of, of vaccines, if you have a view of lockdowns, your view is already hardened. I don't think it's going to change because of what Jason Kenney has done. Uh, I'd also say if you're the Liberal Party, um, this is a public health crisis. No matter how you want to slice it, to make political gains off this would look pretty bad in the eyes of a lot of voters. So, I don't know if you saw um, Justin Trudeau had a press conference, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes ago, and he was asked specifically about this. And he was very soft in the way he approached his question. Just kind of said, Kenny, uh, glad to see Kenny going in the right direction. Didn't get too aggressive or too pushy on the topic. So I think the liberals would be pretty soft on this. But overall, listen, you're in Alberta. Uh, I'm not so sure there's going to be enough vote switching there to uh, to lose a lot of conservative seats there. I mean, Calgary Skyview might be something where this just gains a little momentum. But overall, I'm not so sure you're going to see a lot of conservatives uh, flipping their seats in, in Alberta, given this announcement. That's George Shahal, right? In, in uh, Calgary Skyview, that's the one that I think some people are saying is a riding that could that could swing liberal. I'd be, I'd be curious right. to see. Uh, do you with with regards to gains, um, you know, I, the liberals may look at at Alberta and see a couple of seats that they could pick up. There's 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 I mean, right in the riding where we're coming to you from right here where our studio is. There's a, a real fight underway right now. The incumbent James Cumming, of course, the, the conservative MP, Randy Boisno, formerly the liberal MP, wants his seat back. And and then you've got the NDP running, a, a, you know, a, a reasonably strong campaign as well. And, and people are interested to see where that's going to go. Let's flip it around, though. The conservatives are hoping to do the same thing in Vancouver and in Toronto and I would imagine in different pockets of eastern Canada. How have they done to this point with regards to trying to bounce back from what would have been a disappointing result two years ago? Yeah, I mean, if you look at polling, uh, even six weeks ago, conservatives were down to the liberals almost 10 percent. This, this election was called on the grounds that the liberals wanted a majority. I think O'Toole has done a good job, especially in the Ontario's the Quebec's, uh, the BC's are making it very competitive. 
we always talk about Ontario, uh, the 905 region, right? Those, those suburbs around Toronto. And if you look at those ridings, it's it's very competitive uh, in York region, for example. Some of the ridings in Markham, Aurora, um, they're, they're really making a lot of gains. And those are necessary for O'Toole if he even thinks about having a minority. I'm not so sure what kind of gains we'll see in Quebec, for example. I mean, even at the height of our popularity under Harper, I think the maximum seats we had in uh, Quebec was 12. So I'm not so sure how much gains we're going to make there. But if you want to win this election, uh, even in a minority situation, you need to make gains in the 905. I think O'Toole is doing very, very well in that area, especially because he's made this shift, if you will, to a more moderate kind of conservatism. If you look at all his press conferences uh, over the last three or four days, he always starts by saying, you need to look at our party differently. We're not your father's conservative party. And I think that's starting to resonate with a lot of folks around the 905. I think they want those more moderate views, those issues that cause Andrew Scheer a lot of problems. He's getting away from those, being uh, unequivocal in where he stands on certain issues. And I think it's getting a lot of traction. He's also very pushing the issue of this is an unnecessary election. Every time he comes out, $600 $600 million for this election. We didn't need to have it. It's horrible leadership by Justin Trudeau. This is why you should vote for me. So we'll see how it plays out. But he's done a good job of going from, if you will, a nobody to somebody that can literally be the prime minister of Canada in about three days. I've been trying to figure out uh, what role the People's Party of Canada will will play in this. And I've been talking to, to different commentators, uh, including yesterday out, out of the University of, of Calgary. And, and if you take a look at some polling, it would suggest that about 7% of voters intend to cast a vote for Maxime Bernier's party, which I think would be higher than some people suspect. What do you make of the movement, most particularly in the context of potential vote splitting and what it might do to small C conservatism across the country? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously a threat. And I think uh, when you look at even how the conservative party is handling this, a lot of their third party folks online are pretty much trying to make this a binary choice. If you are a PPC supporter, you probably don't want Justin Trudeau as prime minister. And so the conservatives are the only party on that side of the spectrum that can uh, unseat the liberals. So why waste your ballot for the PPC? Vote for the conservatives. That being said, the PPC as a movement, I mean, I'm a double vaxxed person. I understand the COVID measures, but Bernie stands for a place on the political spectrum where we're saying we can't even have this dialogue about why we shouldn't have um, uh, vaccine vaccine. vaccine passports, why there shouldn't be uh, lockdowns. And because we can't even have that conversation, folks are upset. So I can see why they would gravitate in that direction. But as a protest movement, I mean, if you see that sees any of these parties around the world, these folks don't usually show up on eating, right? They go to these parties. They obviously uh, want to protest. They don't want to really engage in the political system as it is. They're more of a protest vote. But you, I don't think you're going to see this 7% outcome, uh, 5% outcome, whatever it may be across Canada and on actual E-Day. It's more going to be a situation where Conservatives probably can't grow their support too much in the Ontarios because Bernie is kind of presenting a roadblock. They probably can't grow in BC if, if PPC is getting a lot of uh, a lot of support there because uh, because the PPC is presenting a roadblock. So there is always that issue. I'm just not sure how much how, how much of an impact it's going to be. But if we take it seriously, this is a close election. I mean, even losing one or two percent on, on, on of your other vote can be consequential. I'm just not sure where that vote is, con- is concentrated, though. Is it is it actually PBC voters again in that 905 region? I'm not sure. It might be in the more rural areas where, again, we win by 20, 30 percent of the vote anyway. So does it really matter? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, if anything, I think it just sort of sends a message to the electorate and it'll give us a lot to talk about, right? Shakir, after the election, when we have the numbers and if we say, wow, there were in, in, you know, this party making some gains, some real gains and some ridings are across the country. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Uh, Andrew Shear, uh, the subject of a comment here from Dwayne on our live chat. And, and Dwayne says, you know what? He says, I think that Andrew Shear being alongside Alberta's premier at the Calgary Stampede uh, could make matters worse for the Conservative Party of, of Canada. I mean, keep in mind, Aaron O'Toole was there flipping pancakes as well. Then again, a lot of people were at the Calgary Stampede. There was nothing illegal about it at the time. The Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, speaking just a few days ago, made a comment about Aaron O'Toole, uh, who, of course, is, I think, trying to appear to be as progressive as possible on vaccines and science. Chrétien says that basically he's been receiving vaccines for, you know, more than 80 years. And on Aaron O'Toole, I think this is one of the greatest political quotes I've ever seen in my entire life. Mr. Chrétien, he's doing something I cannot do. He is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. How accurate, like, first of all, can we take a moment? That is an amazing quote. But how accurate is former Prime Minister Chrétien on Aaron O'Toole on this front? I think throughout the campaign, uh, you can level a lot of criticisms on Aaron O'Toole on flip-flopping on issues, right? Um, I mean, even at the start of the campaign, there are, there are those conservatives, uh, hardcore conservatives who said in the leadership, you said one thing. Now you're the leader and you're going into campaign, you're doing something completely differently. Um, uh, the whole gun control debate that we had, I mean, what, two or three weeks ago, uh, there was a position in the platform. Now that you've been caught out on it, you put a footnote in your in your platform to kind of change your position on the carbon tax policy. Uh, he was caught out yesterday on carbon, on carbon tax. And now he has a kind of a fuzzy position that, you know what, we might keep Trudeau's carbon tax in place for the provinces that want it. But we'll always have that personal savings uh, account, green, green account, whatever it's called, for the provinces that want to adopt our plan. On vaccines, I think he's been pretty firm on the vaccine uh, um, um, aspect, to be, to be honest with you. I think he's always said there should be the right to choose. Uh, vaccines are the best way out, and he encourages people to get vaccines. But for those that don't want to, it's a personal choice. There is rapid testing. And again, I think there are folks who have been double-vaxxed who understand the health crisis we're in, but you should be able to have a dialogue on this front, right? You shouldn't just say, accept the political consensus uh, and, and move on with it. And I think to the earlier thing you, the earlier thing about the PPC you just mentioned, that's why they're, they're having a rise, because we're just saying, you know what? Political consensus is vaccinate, which I think everyone's encouraging. But if you don't want to do it for whatever your personal reasons are, who cares? Just follow the political consensus. And I think that's the problem that we're having right now. And I think Aaron Oates has been pretty consistent in his position. Shakir Chambers, our guest principal at Earnscliff Strategy Group, uh, a letter released earlier this week from 50 prominent Canadian women urging that child care uh, be a priority this election. Uh, the names on the list include former Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne, uh, child welfare advocate Cindy Blackstock, who was on the show a while ago, former Deputy PM Sheila Copps. Uh, Sandy Garasino, uh, obviously a columnist at National Observer uh, and, and one of our editorial board members, as a matter of fact, senior counsel at Enterprise Canada, Supriya Duavetti. I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, how important you think the subject is. I, I mean, I'm not necessarily asking you whether or not you believe that uh, child care is important for families. I think we can agree on that. But what are voters going to say and how well have the parties done in courting the votes based on a strong child care program? How would you assess the way that the different parties have approached this? Well, I mean, I would say, first of all, um, the NDP campaigned on this in 2015. And I was talking to a former NDP strategist and they were shocked going into the election how little votes they actually got from this policy. 
right? I'm not saying uh, that, that people don't want childcare. I'm not saying parents don't want $10 a day childcare or the rebate, but they were shocked about how many votes were, could drive that policy actually drove uh, come E-Day. That being said, I mean, listen, there's two ways to do this. I think what the conservatives are saying is pretty much, we're going to put money in your pockets and you make a choice. There are people who want childcare who don't fit the regular nine to five uh, workday schedule who can't always use our uh, government mandated spaces. So let's give them the option uh, for those, especially for lower income people. Let's put more money in your pocket so you can go about your business and do what you want to do and make your own choice. I think for the liberals, they're saying one, uh, $10 a day, which I think uh, sounds, sounds pleasing to most parents, but two, we're also going to create spaces. And I think that's the biggest barrier that the conservatives have on this policy. Uh, what is your what is your policy to create more childcare spaces? And I think when you start asking Aaron O'Toole that, it's more about the market will adjust. Uh, because we're putting more money in your pocket, you can go to other sources for childcare that are not regulated spaces. But I don't think the way they're communicating their policy, if you will, is 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 as sexy as the liberal the way the liberals are talking about it. Very clear, ten dollars a day, more spaces. Who doesn't want this? So I think it's obviously a debate there. I'm not sure uh, the final ballots will rest on that one policy in particular. But uh, ultimately, they have different ways of going about it. The, the liberals are, let's pass the money government to government. The conservatives are, let's give the money to the individual, and you make your own choice. Uh, want to let our audience know that Dr. Lindsay Ted's uh, out of the University of Calgary, one of the signatories to that letter, will be joining us on tomorrow's show, on Friday's show, uh, September 17th. So you want to make sure you catch that. Um, Shakir, what's left for the party? So I'll ask you for the three, uh, with no disrespect toward the others, but, but the NDs, the liberals, and the conservatives, what's left to do between now and and Monday, let's say now and Sunday. I mean, Monday, you know, you're not out there campaigning. So between now and Sunday, what do they have to do? It's the final pitches, right? You're seeing Aaron O'Toole today. His final pitch is pretty much unnecessary election. Uh, Justin Trudeau has poor leadership. And he's trying to evoke anger for those who are mad at the last six years of Justin Trudeau, vote for conservatives. I think if you're Justin Trudeau, I mean, you're going to go pretty hard on your core messages. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is an anti-vaxxer. Aaron O'Toole is anti-choice. Aaron O'Toole is anti-climate. Make sure that you drive that message home so it resonates with voters across the board uh, so they come in and support you. And I think for the NDP, their big push is to be the most progressive party. Um, if you look at the way Jugmeet Singh has been campaigning since day one uh, during the debates, he always tries to hit home the point. Um, Justin Trudeau has promised these things for the last six years. These are things we could have gotten done in Parliament if we didn't uh, call an election. Why would you trust him with your vote now? The NDP is the only party to kind of get you over the hump and get the policies you want to see done and become the more progressive party. So it's really the final push. And then you've got to get to your GOTV, right? Getting out the vote initiatives. Who can really get out there and mobilize those votes on E-Day to cast those ballots? That's what it's really going to boil down to, given how tight the polls are. I have uh, uh, Christian Freeland coming up a little bit later on in the show, and um, I'd like you to do my work for me. What's one question? What's one question you'd like to hear Ms. Freeland answer? And not to do with the manipulated media tweet, because that's an obvious one. We'll get to that one for sure. Um, honestly, she's deputy prime minister. What is the vision for the country? I, I'm only asking that because I, I just haven't seen that. Um, they have some good policies that they put in the window, but to call this election and to say it's the most consequential since 1945, I just haven't seen a coherent vision for the country. I get the child care, but a lot of the things that, that they're running on right now could have been done in parliament. The $10, the 10 pay sick days for federal workers, NDP have called for that. They would have been happy to push that through if the liberals were going to work with them on that. The environment and climate change plan, that was already uh, put in place. That could have been pushed through with the NDP support, no questions asked, right? So there's a lot of things that I'm seeing them announce that could have easily been done. So why are we having this election? And what is the vision that you were trying to put forth in this election that I don't think has been communicated very clearly to voters across Canada? Shakir Chambers is a political strategist principal at Earnscliffe 
Strategy Group. You can follow him on Twitter at Shaq Chambers and learn more about what he does at earnscliff.ca. Thanks for your time, my man. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Uh, We'll get to some of your comments on, on what you've just heard there. I saw one on our live chat. It, it passed me by. It's moving like a stock ticker this morning. Uh, someone said something like uh, Aaron O'Toole may or will portray himself as a progressive or as middle of the road, but the base will make sure to change that. And I have to wonder, and, I'm, I, and I don't want to pull a hamstring here. I, I hope this isn't too big of a stretch, but I do think that people will pay attention to some of the dynamics that are happening with conservative leadership at the provincial level, in particular in Alberta. And they'll understand, they'll come to understand how oftentimes a political ideology will influence real life important decisions like dilly-dallying on public health measures during a pandemic. And people may start to wonder When you're beholden to certain groups or beholden to a certain base or driven or you might say handcuffed by a certain ideology, does it actually impact how you govern? And I think that the proof is undeniable. We're going to get to this now in just a second. And I wonder if that makes people a little bit more gun shy, a little bit more, you know, putting that extra few seconds of thought into their vote. Hang on a second. I mean, he, you know, this candidate is saying all the right things. But once they're in office, if they're in office, then what happens? Right. I mean, we're not fools as the electorate. We know that, you know, politicians make promises all the time. We almost joke about how they make promises and don't keep them. And we try not to give them a pass on it. Right. As voters, we look back and we say, well, what did they promise and not deliver on? And we'll show them the next time there's an election. And I'll be curious to see how this one plays out and and whether or not the federal conservatives chances are hampered by what's happening in Alberta or not. I'm not sure. Real talkers, you can let us know what you think. You know where to find us on the emails. A quick note to remind you that our friends at Friesen Brothers have a, a, a almost 45 year tradition. When it comes to the Alberta Beef Roundup, this is a really neat opportunity for families to fill your freezer with a whole hip of fresh Alberta beef. It's custom cut by your in-store butcher at any one of the 16 Friesen Brothers across the province. You want steaks, roasts, stewing cubes, ground round, whatever you want, they'll make it happen. It's a custom cut exercise that brings people out every fall. It's running all the way through till September 23rd, and then it's gone. So you're not going to want to delay. Celebrate this tradition of the Alberta Beef Roundup today with Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also wanted to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park, a check presentation coming to this weekend where they're going to award more than $22,000 to the Wakota Wind Society. Thanks to real talkers like you who showed up to purchase ice cream cones through the month of August. This month, their feature, the two blizzard treats that allow us to welcome fall with open arms. That's the pecan pie blizzard and the pumpkin pie blizzard treats. Both of them, of course, famous additions to the fall lineup at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Roads. Those are the DQs that have our back, and we're proud to be partnered with them. Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney uh, addressing, uh, I I think people outside Alberta were watching yesterday too, quite frankly, um, introducing new measures. Well, I I suppose what's old is new again, because we're going back into a scenario where restaurants and other houses of hospitality will will be making decisions on what's described as a restriction exemption program. 
So basically, if you are a business owner and, and you request proof of vaccination or proof of a negative COVID test within a certain time window, you can operate per usual. If you want to steer clear of that, you can host people on outdoor patios for the next little while anyway, until it becomes impossible weather wise. Gatherings are essentially gone. Households can gather one with another up to a maximum of 10, unless you're not vaccinated, in which case no gatherings are permitted. Here's a portion of what Jason Kenny had to say yesterday when he finally showed up in front of Albertans. I know that we had all hoped this summer that uh, we could put COVID behind us once and for all. Uh, that was certainly my hope, and I said so very clearly. Based on our analysis of other jurisdictions around the world with similar rates of vaccination, we believed that we could prudently move away from addressing COVID as a pandemic and towards an endemic. It is now clear that we were wrong. And for that, I apologize. It's clear we were wrong. And for that, I apologize. And so you, you may feel like that's a decent start. This is going in the direction where Albertans expect it to go. And, and quite frankly, those aren't words that you hear coming out of Jason Kenney's mouth very often. Earlier in the day, Leela Ahir, one of his MLAs, a former cabinet minister, until she called him out anyway, had gone on the record on Twitter and, and said the premier needs to show some humility. And people had some fun with that because that's not exactly how you would define his political career to this point. Then Rick Bell gets a question. Journalists yesterday weren't really having much of it, were they? If you watched it, you know what I'm talking about. Here's the columnist from the Calgary Sun. Albertans deserve more than we were wrong, and for that I apologize. So I'm giving you the opportunity now, Premier, to say something more to Albertans than just that one sentence. Well, sure, Rick. I, as I said, and as Dr. Hinshaw has said, uh, we were wrong in uh, talking about moving this from pandemic management to endemic management uh, in July and August. I frankly don't think we were wrong to lift public health restrictions in July. Sorry, what? Uh, incompetent Premier says, what? You don't think you were wrong? Alberta has COVID cases, hospitalizations, ICU admissions double anywhere else in Canada, not adjusted for population, just literally double, double Ontario, not adjusted for population. And it's because of this government rolling out its best summer ever plan and on July 1st, essentially telling everybody that it was time for a free for all and and posting in front of these big billboards and and calling media that were concerned, interviewing doctors and epidemiologists and virologists about a fourth wave and about hospitals being overwhelmed, calling us fear mongers and overcaffeinated lefties and Twitter doctors. The proof is undeniable. As a matter of fact, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, we played you the video yesterday, told physicians on the record that Alberta is where it's at right now because of the restrictions evaporating in July. That's the chief medical officer of health. That's what she had to say. All you need to know is that yesterday, Alberta's premier went on the record and read the script, I'm sure, that his issues managers or his press secretary or his principal secretary or his chief of staff or whomever told him to read, but he couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself from bristling when Rick Bell, who's typically pretty friendly to the premier, asked him to circle back and and try to be a little bit more specific. I think what Rick Bell was going for was 
Show some humanity. Show some empathy. Show some humility. Acknowledge you have all but disappeared at what is proving to be the worst wave of COVID to hit the province thus far. And we're hearing that from ICU doctors. We're hearing it directly from the people that are working in the hospitals right now. And Premier couldn't help himself. He couldn't help himself from saying he still doesn't believe he's wrong. It's got to be it for this guy. I mean, I've got people sending me wagers. One of my pals wants to know if I want to take a bet. He figures that Premier will resign by Thanksgiving. A lot of people are speculating that if the conservatives were to win the federal election, this could be the worst news all time for Premier Jason Kenney because then he's lost his fighting partner. Then who's he going to throw punches at? Here's what the Internet had to say about it. Edwin Munt always does such an amazing job (laughs) with his I can't believe it's not a passport. I mean, I I don't know if he's going to get sued by the Fabio. I can't believe it's not but uh, but I can't believe it's not a passport. It's not a passport. They promised their base they would not introduce a vaccine passport. So instead, they're introducing these restriction measures. It's kind of the same thing, except for it puts a little bit more of the onus on businesses here. Chris LaBoss here, who's the CEO of Local Waste and several other businesses, he's a good friend of this show, says, you know, we got into this inexcusable situation as a province because the premier, Jason Kenney, let his political self-preservation guide our public safety priorities. Uh, Keep in mind, by the way, I think it's worth mentioning that Chris Labossier ran as a candidate in 2015 for the progressive conservatives. I think that that's context that's relevant here. He goes on in his tweet to say it can't be made any more simple than that. And we can't let him apologize his way out of this. His party must eject him as premier. Chris goes on to say, now I have to stay up all night and try to figure out how to manage my businesses tomorrow morning. This man is the worst thing that ever happened to Alberta's economy, let alone personally responsible for so many deaths. That from Chris Labossier. Here's what here, here's what Brit had to say on Twitter yesterday. This really resonated with people. All caps out of Calgary. I can't believe I'm double va- earmuffs, kids. I can't believe I'm double vaccinated and we're back to two close contacts for single people. This province is fucking infuriating. And I think Brit is reflecting what a lot of people feel right now, which is I did my part. I got double vaxxed. I isolated. I did or am still wearing a mask everywhere. I did my part. People are starting to lose patience with the way that it's all playing out. Of course, I pay keen attention to what the strategists have to say on stuff like this. The three-headed monster of one of my favorite podcasts. And here's what a couple of them went on the record with yesterday. Stephen Carter, uh, formerly chief of staff to former Premier Allison Redford in Alberta, wondering, guys, has anyone seen Matt Wolf? Matt Wolf makes a quarter million dollars a year as Jason Kenney's executive director of issues management. He's the one that told us back at the beginning of June to deal with it because the pandemic is ending. And here's what Corey Hogan had to say. Premier just bought himself the headline. I won't apologize. And we're going to ask them tomorrow how significant that is. What could it cost Alberta's premier to go on the record yesterday and say, I still don't believe we were wrong. The strategist Zane Velji, Corey Hogan and Stephen Carter will join us tomorrow. It's our Real Talk Roundtable on Friday. We'll do it live 
at 9 o'clock Mountain Time, 11 o'clock Eastern, and you won't want to miss that one. Keep the emails coming. We've got a whole bunch of them. We want to remind you that our question of the week this week, yeah, it's, it's asking you about back to school. But here's how this ties into where I think many of you are at right now looking for an outlet. I mean, yeah, first we've got trash talk coming up tomorrow. You know how to submit your rants to us. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. But if you take a look at our website right at the top of the page, you'll see question of the week. And one of the questions that we ask you is how do you feel about living in Alberta right now? Obviously, the question is focused to the members of our listening audience, our viewers that are in Alberta. But after yesterday... We took a look at the dashboard. It allows us to jump in and see how a question of the week is doing midweek. And I thought it was relevant. And so we pulled a few answers. So typically, it'll be early next week that we'll show you and share with you the results of our question of the week. But, but here's what real talkers are telling us right now, including yesterday on our question of the week. This first one jumped out at me. Person said, I'm loving it. Alberta's full of good people who genuinely care for each other. And I went, oh, yeah. Another said, we have the weakest leadership in the country. I find it embarrassing living here right now for the first time in my life, and I am a lifelong conservative supporter. Another says, I love living in Alberta. I just wish we had a different government. Another says, we as teachers must assume that absent or sick students are home with COVID or have close contacts, but, but families are not required to disclose anything. So, I, you know, ironically, there was a case of lice in one classroom. All of a sudden, everybody gets their heads checked. The health unit comes, confirms cases. Letters are sent home to inform parents of a public health issue. We'll mobilize and inform for lice, but not for COVID. This is ridiculous and absurd. This province is a joke. Another tapped into our longtime unofficial slogan. Never made its way onto a license plate, tragically. But this real talker says, I feel a real Alberta disadvantage taking away things like healthcare and public education and post-secondary education that you can get in other provinces makes me feel quite frankly, like a second class Canadian letting people die to cater to business is callous and cruel. Although I don't know that businesses would say that they feel catered to right now. Matter of fact, I think businesses are pretty pissed right now because, because, because they've got to administer this stuff. Anyway, back to the comment viewer says direct attacks on citizens for their beliefs like environmentalists makes me feel like I'm living in a fascist dictatorship. We're hoping to see well over a thousand of you chime in on our question of the week. And again, you can find that at RyanJesperson.com. You want to hear something from the rumor mill? I have it from an extremely reliable source. That this week, earlier this week, a protester outside an Alberta hospital collapsed with symptoms and was ultimately intubated and is now in an ICU collapsed at the protest outside the hospital was rushed into the hospital and was ultimately intubated someone that was protesting outside the hospital how's that I mean that's not a metaphor that's real life but that's Alberta right now I had to ask the source to repeat it to me I said hang on a second what are you saying are you kidding me that person was outside the hospital with COVID protesting them to the point where they collapsed and required medical attention. I don't even know how you wrap your mind around that. The team at Park Power is the team that's powered our hashtag ever since we got started here on Real Talk. And you can find them online, parkpower.ca. The promo code 2021-REALTALK not only gets you 70 bucks off your first bill, but of course it opens up the door for you to learn more about how you can save money every month 
on your internet, electricity, and natural gas. You have a choice where you get these services. They have a fixed rate. It's non-binding, so if you ever want to pull out of it, you can. They don't lock you in like that, but it's a way that a lot of real talkers are finding benefits on paying a little bit less when electricity prices can surge. You can learn more about Park Power's commitment to the community as well, the nonprofits that they support by visiting them online at parkpower.ca. As mentioned, our friends at Kubi Energy have inspired a wonderful outpouring of support from our for our good friend Julie Rohr, a week's worth of positive reflections kicking off every show this week. It's brought such a ray of sunshine to us and, and we know to Julie as well. Her family tells us that she's been checking them out when she can. Kubi Energy, that was their idea, the whole thing behind Positive Reflections, and we just love it. They're installing solar in commercial, industrial, and residential applications across Western Canada right now and year-round, helping people achieve their sustainable energy goals. It's more affordable now than it ever has been before. You can find them online right now. Contact them or submit any questions you might have about going green, getting as close to net zero as you can at kubienergy.ca. Before we talk politics, uh, before we talk to Dr. Kirsten Feist about triage again, which is an important follow-up to a conversation we had yesterday with Dr. James Talbot, we, we need to learn more about this. Is it the Mu variant? You've probably been reading about it. It's not Delta. It's a new one. So what do we need to know? Dr. Raywat Dionandan is an epidemiologist, an associate professor, and assistant director of the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. He's also the co-host of the excellent podcast, Science Monkey, making his return to the show. Doctor, thanks so much for your time. It's great to have you back. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Before we get into this new variant, your thoughts on on what you're seeing across the country with Delta, most particularly in our neck of the woods in Alberta right now, the healthcare system being described as close to collapse. It's frustrating because it was all preventable. It was all predictable. We knew exactly what we needed to do. We have the tools to avoid this. The tools are vaccination, masking, and some other small uh, mitigation tools in society. We didn't have to be here. And by the way, we can still get out of this pretty quickly if we vaccinate everyone very, very fast. So we're not where we were a year ago. A year ago, the virus had us at its mercy. Now we have ourselves at each other's mercy. So from this point on, it's a human problem, not a viral problem. I, I you know, I never want to be the pessimist, um, but but sometimes I find that the, the the realist and the pessimist occupy the same square footage. And and you say we can get out of this quickly if we just all get vaccinated. But but let's be honest, you and I both know, you know, the numbers indicate about one in five people, about twenty percent, just have no intention of doing it. So how do you approach that? Well, who are these people? First of all, those who have not been vaccinated, they're a heterogeneous bunch. They're not all the same people. There are those who are hardcore anti-vaxxers. They're actually a tiny minority. And for them, it's a kind of religion. That's my dog behind me, by the way. We welcome Uh, welcome dog appearances (laughs) on the show all the time. I don't really know how to talk to people with deep religious beliefs like that. Then there are those who are um, apathetic And the apathetic are ones who feel as if their natural immune systems are sufficient and don't see a strong incentive yet to get vaccinated. For that group, that's where vaccine passports really work, because suddenly there's an incentive to seek out vaccination. And you'll see vaccine uptake increase by 10, 15 percent, possibly, as we've seen around the world as a result of these kinds of endeavors. Then there are those who are simply hesitant. I have all the time in the world for the hesitant. There are people who haven't looked at the data, who have uh, scary memes on their Facebook feeds and who have uh, relatives telling them scary 
scary things. They just need better education and more authoritative voices in their ears. Then there are those who want to get vaccinated, but don't have the opportunity. Maybe they've got childcare issues or work issues that prevent them from seeking a vaccine or afraid of the side effects that might prevent them from offering childcare or going to work. So we have policy levers for that as well. There's a host of policy levers we can still pull to cajole and encourage greater vaccine uptake. But that tiny uh, fraction of people who are hardcore anti-vaxxers, the numbers are are. Um, they're variable, uh, range anywhere from 0.06 to 5% of the population. That's not truly a substantial amount. And for that group, we may have to um, work around them. You know, uh, we can tolerate a certain amount of noncompliance, but not a lot. Uh, we, we reference this is a, a bit a bit of a pop culture parallel storyline here. You know, the Met Gala uh, just a couple of nights ago, Nicki Minaj uh, with <laughs> obviously a very significant following on social media. She's a huge star. She's an A-lister, so to speak, and said, you know, I've got to uh, provide proof requirement of vaccine to attend. I'm not going to do it. She basically said, I, I, I still have questions. I'm still doing research and, you know, kind of threw it out there. And I, I'm sure for a lot of people that were really championing vaccines, that felt like a bit of a setback because whether we like it or not, celebrities have big influence for people that that message might resonate. They're still not convinced. They're still not sure. They're still hesitant about the safety of these vaccines. Where are we at now? Millions of them have been administered. We've seen FDA approval in the United States. What would you say to those that are still hesitant like Nicki Minaj? I want to know, first of all, what level of evidence do you need? And we're at the point where hundreds of millions of vaccines have been administered, hundreds of billions. If an untoward data signal were going to come, it would have come by now. It has not come. Yeah, a tiny fraction of people suffer uh, adverse reactions, severe adverse reactions requiring hospitalizations. It's unclear whether any of those people have died from the vaccine. If they have, it's a tiny, tiny smidgen of individuals. You have a greater risk of crossing the street. Uh, so for people like that, I want to know exactly what level of safety do you need and ask yourselves, do you require the same level of safety for other issues in your life, like crossing the street, like eating that hot dog, like uh, eating food at a restaurant for which you do not understand or know all the ingredients or know how hygienic the restaurant kitchen is. We take risks every single day that are much greater than the risk of this particular vaccine. So it, to me, it's a bit of a confusing psychological phenomenon. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't ever want to think about what's in hot dogs. If I do, I'm never going to eat a hot dog again. Uh, Dr. Diodandin, this how do you pronounce it? Is it the mu variant? M-U? Is that how you're saying it? Mu? Sure. Uh, it's it's Greek. I don't, I don't speak Greek. Yeah, Let's go with mu. Me neither. Let's go with mu. Uh, it, it's touchdown in B.C. It's been confirmed uh, in Ontario. This is this is not Delta, right? This is a new one. Can, what, what do we need to know about this? Well, first of all, variants are going to arise. They arise all the time. This is the nature of evolution, and they arise because there is a high amount of transmission around the world. So anytime we have clusters of people getting infected, the virus has opportunities to try things out. And it's not actively, sentiently trying things out. There are random mutations happening all the time. Mutations happening in my body and your body right now as well. The overwhelming majority of these mutations are not beneficial for the virus. They tend to just fade away because they don't give them any advantage. And many of the uh, vi uh, variants, mutations that do arise that seem advantageous also just go away. As a result, the WHO and CDC and other bodies like this have a ranking system for variants. There are three rankings. There's a variance of interest, variance of concern, and variance of high consequence. And determining which category to put them in is based upon, do these variants compromise our ability to detect, treat, prevent? 
right? So detect as in testing, uh, prevention as in vaccine, and treatment as in you know whatever tools we have, like uh, monoclonal antibodies, et cetera. If there's a suspicion that they might be compromising some aspect of that, that we label it a VOI, a variant of interest. If we have data that suggests that it actually is compromising one or more of those domains, then it's a variant of concern. And if it's doing so to a high extent, it's a variant of high consequence. We have no variants of high consequence yet. That's a great piece of news, by the way. We have a handful of variants of concern, Delta among them. Mu is a variant of interest because it's been observed in a number of countries, and it might be more transmissible than some of the existing strains. It might be compromising our ability to prevent to some extent. And the reason they think it compromises our ability to prevent is that it shares a mutation with the beta variant. Beta, you may recall, is from South Africa, and that was known to evade antibodies a little bit. So for that reason alone, it's considered a variant of interest. However, however, in my opinion, it's way too early to be afraid of mu. And in fact, it might just go away entirely. It's not seeing efficient penetration in Europe. It's seeing spread in Central America because it originated in Colombia, and it makes sense to spread around those countries. And as you noted, it's in BC in dozens of cases. And BC has a pretty good system of full genomic surveillance. So pretty much every COVID case gets examined to determine exactly what kind of variant it is. So we know pretty rigorously how common mu is there. But um, even though it's suspected of uh, being able to evade antibodies, that shouldn't scare us necessarily. So a quick little biology lesson. Our, our bodies have two arms of the immune system. We have the antibody arm and we have the cellular arm. So antibodies and T cells and B cells, all that great stuff. And the difference is the antibodies prevent the infection from entering our bodies in the first place. We call that neutralizing. The T cells and B cells and all that fun stuff, once infection is there, they're like the foot soldiers who beat it back to prevent severe disease. All vaccines are built around the, the, um, the desire to prevent disease, not necessarily to prevent infection. It's entirely expected that eventually the vaccines will fail to prevent infection. But are they doing well to prevent disease? Absolutely they are. And there's every expectation that the vaccines will prevent disease caused by mu as well. So, so, so Dr. Me, mind, like, we've, we've just heard, you know, some family friends of ours, uh, you know, have, have, they, they've, they've just all contracted COVID. Uh, both parents are double vaccinated. They, they were quite surprised by it. Um, is this the type of scenario based on what you're just saying, where, where the average person should say, OK, well, hang on a second, though, that's not that unusual the chances of them winding up in the hospital are less likely? I mean, is that how we should be kind of understanding this in a way? Because, you know, a lot of people, Entirely. especially people that are vaccine hesitant, are going to say, well, I still hear that vaccinated people are getting COVID, so it doesn't even work. Yeah, you, you we're getting COVID um, either asymptomatically or light cold-like symptoms and a tiny fraction get it more seriously that's entirely expected very few vaccines provide what we call sterilizing immunity which is complete elimination of infection most vaccines don't if you look at an example like rotavirus the rotavirus vaccine doesn't prevent asymptomatic infection at all and yet it has reduced the incidence of disease by 90 percent. we almost never see the rotavirus anymore so it's entirely possible to push this disease to the fringes of awareness simply by preventing serious symptoms. So, yeah, that is a takeaway here. Uh, the object of the of vaccines is to keep us out of the morgue and keep us out of the hospital. It does that really, really well. All of them do it really well. Doctor, what would you say? I know for a lot of people, it's it's, it's very understandable, especially this audience. Uh, the, the, the demographic of this audience, there are a ton of parents 
And there are a lot of people that have kids in school. There are people that have kids that can't be vaccinated. And there's a significant number, as we know, of teachers that uh, I mean, I just read an email from a teacher earlier this morning on the show that they're really concerned. They feel like they're flying blind a little bit. Uh, What's your message to parents right now with these variants, with high case counts, with kids back in schools? You know, a lot of people, this can be extremely stressful for obvious reasons. Yeah, I'm stressed as well. I have a small child. Uh, Luckily, he's not old enough to go to school yet. And I'm waiting for vaccination to be eligible for his age group. And I will jump on that tray when it arrives. My message is uh, we're all in this together. Uh, Delta is no joke. And Delta is the thing that we're afraid of right now. Forget about Mu. Delta is the beast that we should focus on. Hypertransmissible. It looks like it probably is not more serious for children. It's just that because the adults are mostly vaccinated, then the data will show that children are the ones being infected more. That doesn't mean it's targeting children. However, having said that, we have tools to keep our children more safe. Those tools include making sure all the adults in that child's life are are vaccinated, all of them. Making sure that all the adults in the school are vaccinated. Making sure that the child wears good quality masks and the people around them wear a good quality mask when they're indoors with people they don't live with. And a good quality mask, in my mind, is in the N95 family. Making sure we have good ventilation in schools. If your school doesn't have good ventilation, inquire about why that is. Making sure we have symptom checks. Symptom checks alone aren't good enough, but they're good for keeping symptomatic people out of schools. Symptomatic people are more likely to spread the disease further because they're coughing and sneezing and more likely to be infectious. And the other tool that we can deploy with great effectiveness that we haven't explored fully yet is the rapid testing. Now, increasingly, it's becoming available to common citizens as it should be. And we can buy them at Walmart and places like that at great expense, sadly, but it should be subsidized further. Rapid tests are great for determining, are you infectious at that given moment? And if you are, just don't go to school, don't go to these environments. We can really control this well. So the good news for parents and everybody is that, again, we have the tools to keep everything running smoothly and to keep our kids safe. We just have to use them and have our leaders encourage us and subsidize us to use them. Really appreciate the way that you approach this, uh, doctor. You've obviously got the knowledge and you, and you communicate it in a way that we can understand. And, and even though we're talking about deadly serious stuff, I always feel a little more educated and a little more reassured after you're on the show. And we're grateful for that. People can download your podcast, Science Monkey, uh, Dr. Ray Watt Dionand, <laughs> an, an epidemiologist, associate professor and uh, assistant director of the Interdisciplinary School of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Uh, we're going to get into a conversation with Dr. Kirsten Feist in just a moment, an epidemiologist uh, out of the University of Calgary, also director of research and innovation in the Department of Critical Care Medicine, uh, and then uh, former deputy prime minister, we'll say, because she's on the campaign trail, liberal candidate Christia Freeland coming up later in the show. Not a bad show, Sarah Hoyles. In the meantime, every Thursday, our friends at Prairie Catering offer somebody An opportunity to eat your words. And today, it's Alberta's premier in the spotlight. I want to take you back to a quote on the record from earlier this summer. Here he is, Jason Kenney. And finally, um, you know, at this stage of this, I, I don't think it's responsible constantly to be spreading fear. We need to embrace the science of the protective effect of vaccines. 
I've seen some. I've heard about CTV reports uh, about uh, you know that we should, we're headed into the fourth wave, and and some person on Twitter with their projections that the, we're going to be a wash in, in in Delta cases, forcing people into the hospital. And that's literally exactly where we are. Literally, a wash in Delta cases, a whole bunch of people in the hospitals. I wish I didn't have such happy and fun music as I reiterate the fact that our ICUs are now jam-packed to record numbers, that beds are being pulled out of children's hospitals in the province because COVID patients are taking over, cardiology units, heart surgeries are being postponed, hip replacements for people on OxyContin every single morning are now waiting an extra year. There's a guy with a mandarin orange-sized brain tumor. That's this big for the people that are watching us on YouTube. Imagine this thing right here in your melon and you can't get it out because there's so many unvaccinated COVID patients in the hospital. The Delta variant, like Dr. Dionandon just said, is one to be feared. And the warnings were there from public health professionals that endured bullshit from the premier's office, calling them fear mongers and Twitter doctors and over caffeinated lefties. Thank God we have people that have stepped up and shown great courage in the face of political adversarial soldiers like Jason Kenney, who's asked people to be responsible and pay attention to the science, but hasn't done anything close to that. He's lost his moral authority to govern, and it's time for the health minister, Tyler Shandro, and Premier Jason Kenney to resign. Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, it's my honor to invite you to eat your words. Prairie Catering is offering amazing corporate catering for office meetings, for in-person or virtual requirements. They can deliver. They do it time and time again. And they invite you, when they're able, to host business meetings and conferences at the Art Gallery of Alberta. It's never too late to book your gatherings months from now, from executive boardrooms to that beautiful state-of-the-art theater. They can host up to 300 people, and they're offering 20% off right now. That's big for any rental space at the AGA for your next corporate function. When you mention Eat Your Words on Real Talk, presented by Prairie Catering. We had a chance to speak yesterday with Alberta's former chief medical officer of health, Dr. James Talbot. And we talked about triage. Now, this is something that we knew we needed to follow up on. And, and in just a second, I'm going to talk to Dr. Kirsten Feist about this. An epidemiologist, what does triage mean and why is it so significant? Why do you need to know about it, regardless of whether or not you're feeling healthy right now? Let's tee this up. This is Dr. James Talbot on Real Talk yesterday. It's a very slippery slope mm-hmm. uh, in terms of uh, blaming people for their disease and uh, and we it's not like the human race hasn't done that for thousands of years but things got better when we stopped doing and so you know the person who has diabetes and needs an operation to get rid of the diseased limb who hasn't been following their diet or hasn't been using their insulin to stay under control we don't uh, the healthcare system has no role in punishing them for not following instructions. Our job is to prevent disease, promote health, and prolong life. And 
And so the, the answer is no. What I will say, though, is that if we get to a triage protocol situation, that it's very important for people, and uh, they, they are available publicly, it's very important to take a look and see where you would stand on because there will be factors in there in terms of your age, other morbidity that you have. Uh, I don't think vaccine status is, is going to be one of those. Okay. So that was Dr. Talbot yesterday. It prompted an email from Allie. And Allie wrote in and said, I, I was listening to Dr. Talbot on your show, Ryan, and, and I, I would like to respectfully disagree with his assessment that prioritizing vaccinated patients is unethical that it's against the Hippocratic Oath, that it's punishing people for the disease they have. Uh, Like he said, Dr. Talbot has never been part of instituting triage protocols, and I wanted to share some thoughts on the topic, says Allie, since I work in critical care research. Uh, She says triage is done based on who's the most likely to survive critical care. Uh, always. And this can include factors like current status, age, comorbidities, and different institutions have come up with different systems for how to look at these factors and predict who has the best chance of making it. As an aside, can you imagine that being part of your job, trying to decide who has the best chance of making it? Ali says, with limited resources, you have to make the heart-crushing choice of who has the better shot. It's not a judgment on their worth as a person, and you're not punishing them for having heart failure or diabetes. It's the terrible reality that resources go to those with the best chance of survival. Being vaccinated for COVID-19 improves the likelihood that you will survive a COVID infection. Prioritizing these patients wouldn't be based on the idea that they're more important or that people who are not vaccinated deserve to be a lower priority. It would be based on the philosophical foundation of how triage decisions have to be made. Ali says, I think it's a really important point to stress that if triage protocols need to be instituted, it's about survivability, not punishment, whether the criteria involves comorbidities or vaccination status. And then here she goes, Ali earning herself a co-producer credit says, if you want to talk to somebody who knows a lot about this, I really recommend reaching out to Dr. Kirsten Feist at the University of Calgary. She's the lead author on a recent rapid review on how critical care resources are allocated during an infectious disease outbreak and specifically a critical care epidemiologist that from Real Talker Alley. Well, thank you. And here she is. Uh, Dr. Kirsten Feist, our guest and assistant professor in the critical care medicine community and health services and psychiatry at the University of Calgary, director of research and innovation in the Department of Critical Care Medicine, making her Real Talk debut. Doctor, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I'm a big fan. Well, that means a lot. And uh, can I say I'm a big fan of what you're doing for your province and for your country right now, helping people survive this uh, no small feat, considering uh, the Delta variant, what we just heard from Dr. Raywat Dionand. And uh, what do you make of Dr. Talbot's comments yesterday about triage? He says, listen, we don't punish people for having diabetes. You can't start prioritizing the vaccinated when it comes to these tough calls. Absolutely. And and I do agree with him that, you know, on the surface, prioritizing people who are vaccinated over not vaccinated is not going to happen. It's not part of the triage criteria. However, what is part of the triage criteria is how severely ill you are and your likelihood of surviving. And as Ali said, that in itself will play into the decision of whether or not you receive critical care or not. So I think that that will become a part of the conversation uh, when determining who gets a bed in the ICU or who's removed uh, from life support uh, to make room for someone else. 
and how close are we to making these types of very difficult decisions? Are we already there as a province right now? Well, triage happens inherently every day in the healthcare system. So people are always being determined whether they're eligible for a critical care bed or not. It's just the level of pressure on the system right now means that that might have to happen on a really large scale. And so obviously, as we hear every day, new capacity is being added to our ICU beds. We are pulling people from other services to provide care. And honestly, our most limited resource now as people. We have lots of ventilators. We have beds and space because unfortunately we've had to take over other areas to provide care for the sickest patients in the hospital. And I I can't say how close we are because we actually do have the capacity to continue to add more beds. It's just a matter of what else has to give in order to make that happen. If we're bringing in people from other provinces, you know, to provide some services like physicians and nurses, respiratory therapists, that's going to help. But the fact that we're talking about this means that we're closer than, you know, we've ever been. I just I I, I don't even want to put you in the spot here. I mean, I, I guess you can comment on this if you want. But hearing you say, yeah, we you know, we can bring in healthcare professionals. We can recruit medical professionals, doctors, nurses, respiratory techs that are doing the intubation and everything else from other provinces. And I sit there and go, and who's recruiting them exactly? Like, is it going to be the same people that have been picking fights with doctors and nurses and respiratory techs for the last year and a half? And now they're going to try to convince them to come from other provinces to come live here and get treated like the other ones have been treated. I mean, I just can't. You know, people, I don't think people are going to sit here and go, am I paranoid if I feel really nervous at who's running the show right now? I think if you're not nervous about who's running the show right now, you're not paying attention. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, given the political climate in Alberta and what's, you know, the rhetoric around healthcare professionals during COVID, you know, it, it might be a big stretch to ask people to now come here and practice, though I do feel for a lot of individuals, uh, their, their duty to care uh, for patients might supersede, you know, that. Um, but it's a concern. Who's going to come to Alberta right now? Uh, we don't know. Yeah. And, and, and like you talk about the duty to care, uh, the, the, the calling that is medicine, I think, is, is maybe in some circumstances you'll hear from people uh, in a moment of honesty that that's the only reason why they keep showing up for work, despite the fact that they're totally exhausted. Uh, doctor, have you started? I mean, you're, you're driving this this research um, specifically uh, in, in uh, critical care resources and how they're allocated during an, an infectious disease outbreak. Is this ad hoc? In other words, did you start doing this because of COVID or were you doing this already? So that's a great question. So um, we've always been interested in triage and how uh, care is allocated in critical care because you have to plan for the possibility that there's going to be a mass casualty event or a natural disaster or some other situation where the needs uh, of the population for critical care beds might exceed the capacity. So that's certainly always been top of mind. But when COVID started to emerge last spring, that immediately popped into my heads and, you know, the heads of my colleagues, AHS uh, tasked critical care leaders to immediately start developing its own triage criteria. And at the same time, I was curious, what's already been done? What's out there? How do people allocate critical care resources in, in other times, say during the H1N1 pandemic or, you know, during other uh, critical times? And we look to see how's it done, who gets care and who doesn't get care. And it's really important for the public to know where they would stand. 
And that's, I guess, what I want to ask you. And, and, and I understand, I, I guess this question needs a bit of a preamble or a bit of a caveat because it's it's probably a bit of an unfair one because these these are, are case by case scenarios. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, who should be most concerned right now or generally speaking, who's most at risk right now? Like, like who kind of f- drops down the list when these difficult triage, triage decisions are being made? Yeah, so there's a number of criteria, and AHS actually has split its triage plan into two phases. Phase one determines who gets critical care and who doesn't, so who would be eligible for a bed. Phase two, the more severe phase, actually determines whether someone would be removed from care, so whether care would be withdrawn to make room for another patient. So obviously, that's the most severe circumstance. So when you're determining who gets a critical care bed and who doesn't, it's all about survivability. So do you have a better chance of surviving. You have a greater than 80 or 90% chance of living from now until a year from now. And if your goals of care, or if what you've decided aligns with your personal philosophy about whether you would want to be mechanically ventilated or have chest compressions done, that will determine, first of all, whether you're eligible. If we get down another layer, it's going to be about your comorbidities, so people with severe brain injuries or dementia, severe heart failure, they might be lower on the priority list if your severity of illness is worse. So worse. So say you're coming in with COVID, you're on a ventilator, your lungs are destroyed by this illness, your survivability is going to be less than someone whose lungs aren't affected by COVID in the same way. So that is absolutely it. And unfortunately, when we get into more difficult triage scenarios, age does become a factor. And that's a big one, right? Someone wrote us an email. I don't have it in front of me, but but I remember someone wrote an email about their father uh, who, who's, you know, in his 80s and uh, they're feeling this very personally. This this is what this pandemic has done. Right, doctor, is 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 people view things understandably. So you view things in the context of your own surrounding, your own family, your loved ones. What does this mean for my family business? What does this mean for my elderly parents? What does this mean for my kids in school? What does this mean for my sister who's, you know, got an immunocompromised type scenario, whatever the case is? Right. And, and, and so for people that sit there and, and say, you know, my, you know, grandpa's 84, um, but still lives by himself and drives his own car and still mows his own lawn and is confident he's going to see his hundredth birthday. But if grandpa finds himself in this type of triage scenario, there there may be. I mean, this sounds so almost cold, but this is just real life and this is how it has to go, I guess. But people's windows will be prematurely closed, at least theoretically, right? Because we're in this scenario. Absolutely. In fact, when I got the invitation from you yesterday to talk about this, I called my mom and I said, you know, I'd prefer if you and dad kind of acted like you weren't vaccinated, even though you are, because I'm really worried. I saw the age criteria you know, is is 60. Uh, And in addition to a number of other things, it's not just a hard stop at 60, your severity of illness comes into play and what other comorbidities you have. But I'm worried. And I, you know, I called my mom and I said, please just, you know, cancel your activities and, and act like you're not vaccinated. So that it's a load off of my mind, because absolutely, people that we love, are, you're going to see them in that triage criteria as as people who might not get care. 
And then this, of course, creates an entire other. I mean, you, you know, the dialogue that would that will that will no doubt become public and that will drive, I think, a lot of public opinion is when this starts becoming real for people and when people ultimately start losing loved ones because we're in a position where these difficult decisions are, are having to be made. Doctor, how, how would you say that the research that you've been doing has has, you know, either evolved during COVID or maybe maybe even has integrated itself into some of the evolution of public policy? Have you seen some some policy evolution on the fly or are medical professionals determining best practices, you know, over the past 18 months? And are you seeing some significant changes in how those decisions are being made? I think uh, over COVID, uh, it's become very apparent that critical care is one of the most limited resources that we have. Mm -hmm. And so any time, you know, our amazing practitioners are in the hospital, they're having to make these really difficult decisions about, you know, how long someone might live. Um, and we might not call it triage, but they're always talking about the goals of care with patients and their families. And so some of the research I've been doing on the effect that COVID, um, that restricted visitation policies have had on care providers um, has certainly led to some changes. And with triage, we're only starting to see that now, but people in critical care have always been aware of triage and it's this uh, protocol is not new to them, but what we need to do now is ensure that care providers from across the hospital are familiar with it, that the public is familiar with it, that they understand what triage means and when it's activated. And one thing I'm really worried about that we haven't touched on yet is the effect that this is going to have on our already burnt out healthcare staff and having to make these decisions. I can't imagine making those decisions. And uh, to state the obvious, Kirsten, there's making the decision and then there's communicating the decision to the family, right? Can, can, can we talk about the impact that that has on someone? Absolutely. So again, putting yourself in that position, being the ICU care provider who has to uh, talk to the family and tell them that the way that the triage protocol is written is that it's not one individual's decision, which I think is really important. It's a decision of the person's care provider and other healthcare staff who come to a decision about this person's eligibility for critical care or whether or not they should have their care withdrawn. But still being involved in those decisions, the moral distress, the PTSD, the depression, anxiety that these healthcare providers must feel uh, of having to be involved in that, um, I, I can't even begin to, to comprehend how that might affect them in the long run. In addition to the amount of work and, and pressure they're already under and, and the public dialogue around, you know, healthcare providers right now being so, you know, split uh, between people who value them and people who don't. Um, it's just extremely, extremely difficult. And then to have to communicate that to a family, um, I don't even have words. I don't have words either because what and, and what's the family supposed to say, right? Like family's going to go, oh, cool. I guess it was her time like there, there's no ex, yeah. there's no acceptable explanation. There's nothing that's going to make sense. And I, I just you know, this is I feel like my my I feel like my my heart's in my throat a little bit, to be honest, even talking about this. I'm grateful that people like you are researching this. and I'm grateful that we have the competent and empathetic but also evidence-driven professionals that are making these decisions that would be impossible for the average person to wrap their mind around, including me. 
Uh, I'm taking a look here, doctor, at our live chat and some interesting comments here. I want to put these in front of you. Mark, uh, Mark says triage has to take into account refusing the vaccine. People have a choice with the vaccine. Others didn't choose requiring brain surgery as an example. Uh, And then this from Gilles, which I think is an interesting point. Gilles says publishing the potential triage protocol for public consumption will absolutely drive vaccinations. Unvaccinated people will have a higher mortality rate and therefore will be a lower priority. What would you make of those two comments? Yeah. So to address the second one, um, the current triage criteria, which started to be developed in March of 2020 and was finalized later in the summer last year, is on the AHS website. So I would encourage people to, to search for that on the Internet and look at it and see, am I am I someone who's going to be triaged at some point and, and where do I fit in uh, to the queue there? And it's really important that people understand it. it's not enough to just have the document. It needs to be explained to people. They need to understand what the implications of triage are. And to speak to uh, the first comment, the triage criteria were developed prior to uh, the rollout of uh, vaccinations, uh, both in healthcare professionals and in the general population. Though um, the ethical principles that guided the development are about on uh, ultimately who uh, has the highest likelihood of survival. And so although vaccinations are not um, written into the document and I wouldn't expect that to change, people's likelihood of survival will be dependent on whether they're vaccinated or not because that will drive their severity of illness. Okay, so you're not gonna see it on paper that the unvaccinated are automatically bumped down but the reality is is that if you're unvaccinated you stand a lesser chance of full recovery and therefore will be bumped down is that kind of what we're saying here yeah i think in the most severe cases yes because we know that there's going to be multi-organ failure the brain's affected the lungs affected you know the uh, your liver is affected all of these organs are affected by COVID and you're going to be really, really sick if you're in the ICU with with that illness. And if someone, you know, comes in and say they've been in an accident, they might not have the same multi-system failure and therefore their severity of illness uh, might be to the point where it's severe enough that they need to be in the ICU, but their likelihood of surviving in a year is, is better. And we know that outcomes are better for people who have been vaccinated, even if they do get a breakthrough infection of COVID. We know that their likelihood of getting critically ill is much lower. And so you have to imagine that that's what's going to happen. Uh, doctor, I'm, I'm really grateful for the time that you've given us uh, this morning and, and, and just want to thank you again so much for like for us to have kind of these steady science-driven voices that can deliver oftentimes really difficult realities uh, in a way that I think can help people better understand and find some sort of, I mean, to invoke the cliche of this sort of calm in the storm, because, because I feel tension talking about this stuff. I, I talked to doctor, you know, you know, we'll talk to a doctor uh, about, you know, this new variant. And then we'll talk to you about triage. And then we're going to talk to other experts about the healthcare system crumbling and talk to other people about businesses experiencing stress and talk to other people about their kids in schools and no disclosure about. Co- you know what I mean? And it just piles up and piles up and piles up. And, and I think that people are looking around them 
uh, as Mr. Rogers said, on the advice of his mom, I think it was to look for the helpers. And so thank you for being a helper. And and by the way, thanks for subscribing to Real Talk. We heard off the record that it's one of your pot go to podcasts. And, and that really meant a lot to me. That kind of made my afternoon yesterday. So thanks for making time for us today. Thank you, Ryan. You got it. She's a helper. There she is. Uh, she's also the assistant professor of critical care medicine, community health sciences and psychiatry at the University of Calgary, director of research and innovation in the Department of Critical Care Medicine. That is epidemiologist Dr. Kirsten Feist. Do you feel better about interviews like that? I mean, you know, when, when, when you start talking, because these words are very powerful. The healthcare system is stressed. The healthcare system is crumbling. The healthcare system is at risk of collapse. These are big implications. As Canadians, we've, and, and people will take shots at Canadian healthcare and, you know, talk about how there's not the choice you would expect or it's still tough to find a family doctor or wait times are still really tough in ERs. And there's always been, you know, conversations around accountability for how much, you know, provinces and the federal government will spend on health care. You know, for context, Alberta spends more than $20 billion a year on health care. So when you start hearing about a system at risk of collapse, I think it can it can I experience like actual physical tension when I hear that. Does a conversation like that one? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Does it make you feel any better? Or does it or does it make you feel a little bit more stressed knowing that there's going to be health professionals that are going to have to make difficult decisions that are going to be impossible to process for families. It reassures me that I have had, you know, two shots that I am vaccinated, double dosed. That is what it gives me reassurance in. It also raises the flag as it did for the doctor that I need to talk to my parents. They are double vaxxed, but they are over that 65 uh, age threshold. And I like, I, I need to implore them to just, hold steady, which is really hard because as the premier noted yesterday, 19 months into this. Yeah. And see Hawes, I've talked about audience member Hawes before. Hawes is Hawes and I have been hanging out for years. Hawes listened to a former radio show I did for a long time and, and Hawes has held me accountable on things. And I always appreciate I've never met Hawes. Um, don't know them personally, but chimes in and says risk of collapse sounds like hyperbole. And I agree to a degree. Like, I do agree. It's not like all of a sudden the hospitals are going to be boarded up and no one's going to be able to you know, get prescription medications and all the surgeons are just going to quit showing up and people are going to be dying in the streets. And that's not really what we're alluding to. But, you know, you're hearing of brain surgeries being postponed, heart transplants being postponed, hip replacements being postponed. You might think big deal on a hip replacement. Talk to somebody that's required a hip replacement for a year. Talk to them about their daily pain. Talk to them about the opioids they're using to manage their pain and whether or not they'd like to get off the opioids. I mean, there are huge implications here. And I want to be a responsible communicator. And so while I'll take Hawes's point about hyperbole, at the same time, we do not ignore that there are healthcare professionals that are, I mean, they're being diagnosed with PTSD because of what they're enduring through all of this. And so we're trying to find clarification is what I'm saying. And we want to go to reputable sources as we do every day on the show and say, we're hearing this. We read this on social media. What's real? What's really going on? What's the real risk of a new variant? What does triage really mean for people? And we appreciate those of you that continue to show up for these conversations, of course, that share our content as well. Uh, Christian Freeland coming up in just a moment. We wanted to remind you right now that our friends at Jet Set Parking have an amazing offer. If you're flying out of Edmonton's International Airport, you know, you can fly nonstop starting December 16th from Edmonton to Palm Springs. That's a direct flight. 
Edmonton to Palm Springs beginning December 16th. Why not park your money in the bank and park your car at JetSet? If you go online to JetSetParking.com and use the promo code REALTALK, you can park for $8 a day for any travel by the end of 2022. That's right. For the price of a triple venti, extra hot, no foam, three pump syrup, caramel macchiato, I had to think of what an $8 coffee would be. Dang. You know, people always say, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can... So I thought I'd have to cook up an $8 cup of coffee. Just a li- couple extras. So for the price of a triple grunt, I won't do it. But for $8 a day, are you kidding me? For airport parking, $8 a day with the promo code REALTALK at Edmonton International. You can book it today for any travel by the end of 2022. JetsetParking.com. They're locally owned and you'll love them. Also wanted to remind you about our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge Jeep. I was telling you that, you know, they've got, of course, all these new Jeep Grand Cherokee L's showing up. These are the ones that people have been looking forward to because it's the first time that the best-selling SUV in history, the Grand Cherokee, is rolling out with a third row of seating. It's the Grand Cherokee L, and they're touched down now at St. Albert and Sherwood Jeep Dodge. You can check out their inventory online. Just link to them through the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Of course, you can see them safely, distanced, and masked in their two dealerships. Their sales and service teams always ready to take your call at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. Well, she has served over the past number of years as uh, Canada's Deputy Prime Minister, Canada's Minister of Finance. She is running in the Toronto riding of University Rosedale for the Liberal Party, making her return to Real Talk. It's a pleasure to welcome Christia Freeland. Thanks for making time for us. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Ryan. And I'm in Edmonton this morning. Yeah. Well, hey, where are you talking to us from? What's the deal? I am in Randy Boissonneau's office in his campaign headquarters. Okay, so I think you're actually probably like a pitching wedge from us right now, as a matter of fact, but we're not taking guests in studio or we would have loved to have you here. How important is it for high profile liberal candidates to be in Alberta right now, just a few days before the majority of Canadians will go to the polls? Well, it's really important for me to support the great candidates that we have here in Edmonton. I'm going to be spending some time with Randy and his team. I'm going to be spending some time with Ben Henderson and his team. And I really, really believe that a liberal government would be so much stronger with people elected from Alberta in that government. And I think progressive Albertans need some liberal MPs to stand up for them. So that's why I'm here. Um, And to stand up for them, including, by the way, Ryan, I listened to the previous part of your show, um, including to stand up for Albertans in the fight against COVID. And you said, you know, you feel even physically stressed by what's happening. Um, I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that it is an incredibly frightening time right now. I heard your co-host saying that she's worried about her parents. I'm worried about my dad. He's going to turn 77 the day after the election, and he just got through cancer during COVID, and he's double vaccinated. But I think all of us uh, who live in Alberta or who love people who live in Alberta, we're really, really worried right now. And I do also want to say I I spoke to 
uh, a doc, an Alberta doctor, an Edmonton doctor this morning. And I just want to say to all the healthcare workers, um, you know, the word hero can be overused, um, but you really are heroes. And uh, I bet you'd agree with me, Ryan, in saying we all are very grateful to you and support you. Um, I'll recognize that that uh, Minister Haidu has been managing the health portfolio, but obviously you're a senior cabinet minister when when government's in session uh, before parliament was dissolved. Uh, can you take us behind the scenes and give us some insight into how that dynamic works? Obviously, provinces have a great deal of autonomy when it comes to to managing uh, their health care delivery. You You've seen an interesting dynamic in the province of Alberta right now across partisan lines. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of conservatives that are, quite frankly, pretty pissed off with the provincial government right now. I know that there's been somewhat of an adversarial relationship. We've seen public snipes between the federal health minister and Alberta's health minister, Tyler Shandro. Take, take us behind the scenes. Well, I don't have to reveal any state secrets, Ryan, um, to point out to you and to your listeners that I'm sad to say the terrible tragedy we're seeing unfolding in Alberta, um, it was preventable. And, you know, Patty Haidu wrote a letter to Tyler Shandro at the beginning of August. And, you know, she really questioned the plans to lift all the COVID-19 health restrictions. Uh, She said she agreed with the Canadian Pediatric Society that described this action as unnecessary and risky. And I think you'll remember that the response to that letter from Patty was quite hostile. Um, You know, we can't go back in time, but I sure wish that people had taken that letter seriously and listen to that advice. Um, it's it is it's more than frustrating. Uh, I think you know it makes me really angry to see all the unnecessary pain and suffering. And I'm afraid there's more to come. I think that a lot of people suspected that this election would be about COVID and how the federal government managed it and and including the finances, uh, which is obviously something that you've had a great deal of involvement with. You're probably the most qualified person in the country to talk about the finances of Canada's COVID response. But you talk to the average person, you talk to political strategists, and many of them that we've had on the show are saying it's kind of really been an underwhelming message cycle, not just from the liberals, but across the board. Many Canadians are trying to understand what this election's actually about and whether or not Justin Trudeau has, has even convinced the electorate that it was necessary in the first place. What would you say to those that haven't been able to pin down the real reason for or the theme of this election? You know, Ryan, I am not much of a spin doctor person or a message cycle person. Um, I am kind of more of an earnest focus on the challenges in front of us person. And so I'm going to start where you started, which is talking about the economy and COVID. And I want to say two things. Um, The first one is I really want to speak to those of your listeners who are concerned about the economic impact that these new restrictions could well have on Albertans, on Alberta small businesses, and on Alberta workers. And I want to say to them, 
directly from me, from the prime minister, from our party, if we form government again, we will be there for you. We made a commitment at the beginning of COVID that we would do whatever it takes to support businesses and workers. And I think we have shown that we would be true to that commitment and we will continue to be. There is nothing more important than that. And that I, I want, you said you're feeling physically stressed. I bet there's a lot of people feeling that way. And I want them to know that is my priority. Um, to the point about the election, look, uh, the election is about real choices. And unfortunately, um, I think people in Alberta have been bitterly reminded this week that not only the single most important health challenge we all face is COVID, but that finishing the fight against COVID is the single most important economic challenge our country faces. You know, as someone who has served as finance minister, I can tell you there is no economic policy more important than getting on top of COVID, bringing that threat to an end, and being in a position where we don't have to impose additional lockdowns. That means being ready to take tough measures. It means tough action on vaccine mandates. It means doing smart things like support for additional ventilation, which we have provided already. We're providing more in our platform. And, you know, Ryan, this election is about that because you have heard from the prime minister. We're prepared to take tough action on vaccine mandates to provide legal support for businesses, organizations like hospitals that want to impose those. And I'm sorry to say the Conservative Party is not prepared to do that. Aaron O'Toole is not even prepared to say that all of his candidates have to be vaccinated. And that's just not enough. It's not good enough. For people in Ed, it's not good enough for Edmontonians. It's not good enough for Albertans. It's not good enough for Canadians. Okay, but let me ask you what that actually means. When you say you're you're, you're willing to provide resources and supports for businesses or agencies, organizations, hospitals uh, th- that may require them or that may desire them. I mean, we are the recipients of literally hundreds of emails that are sent to you know people. Someone will send an email to the you know the, the mayor of their city and the premier of their province, and they'll send it to the PMO, and they probably send them to you. I don't I imagine that I could understand what your email inbox looks like, and they'll say, "Please help." Please jump in. Please intervene. Uh, you and I just talked about the letter that Federal Health Minister Patty Haidu sent to Alberta and to Alberta's Ministry of Health, which obviously uh, prompted uh, uh, quite a snarly response from Health Minister Tyler Shandra, who has essentially suggested she should stay in her lane and quit politicking about this type of thing. So how does that play out? I mean, what is the federal government supporting a business around something like vaccine mandates actually tangibly look like? Because I think if people were aware of a commitment like that or more aware of it i bet you there are people that would take you up on that right now okay well take me up on it right now it plays out in three ways number one the economic support to do the right thing and to get through these new lockdown restrictions that have been put in place and to businesses who are worried i want you to know The economic supports are still there now. They're in place through the end of October, and we will continue to provide them as needed if we're reelected. Number two, Ryan, vaccine mandates. Businesses, organizations like hospitals, schools, universities 
I believe the federal government's job is to empower them to require people to be vaccinated, to go inside and take advantage of the services of those businesses, but also to say to their employees, you know, if you're not vaccinated, you can't work here. That is a very tough policy. I have talked to a lot of business and community leaders who have said to me, I want to do that. I know that's the right thing. I've talked to hospital CEOs, but I want to know that I'm not going to get sued if I introduce a tough mandate like that. We are committing, and the conservatives are not, to introducing legislation that protects businesses legally if they want to take that tough but I would say necessary measure. This is pretty serious. Uh, I, w- I mean, I, I spoke with a firefighter just the other day who told me, he said people would be surprised at how many firefighters, how many police officers are not intending on getting vaccinated, how many of them are willing to file grievances with their unions, uh, much to his chagrin. I mean, he was quite frankly pretty ticked off that he was saying hundreds of thousands, if not more of their union dollars are going to have to go to fighting something that, that he just can't get behind. I mean, I would imagine this is all things considered uh, and and how many circumstances we might be talking about a a pretty significant commitment that could become very real for the federal government. Do you foresee this actually playing out and happening? A hundred percent. And look, Ryan, you know, I, you know, I am someone who is double vaccinated. Um, I actually have a button here that everyone on my campaign in Toronto wears when we knock on doors saying, I am double vaxxed Um, and it can be hard for me to understand why people wouldn't be vaccinated after all this time. But the fact remains, some people are choosing not to get vaccinated. And so you're quite right. It is a tough position that we are taking saying it's okay for businesses, for places like hospitals, for heaven's sake, to say, you can't work here if you're not vaccinated. And I really support all of the leaders who are stepping up and saying that. And I want them to know, the prime minister wants them to know, we will give them the legal protection to take that tough action. You know, in my own riding in Toronto, UHN, big hospital, has said after October 22nd, If you're not double vaccinated, you can't work there. I applaud them for that action. And Dr. Kevin Smith said to me, you know, it's a little worrying. As you said, Ryan, we could get sued. Mm -hmm. And I was glad to say to him, if we're reelected, we will give you legal protection. And I want to say that to all the truly amazing healthcare workers, the nurses, the doctors, in Alberta, we'll give you that protection too, and we'll give that protection to every single business, every single organization. But it is a tough action, Brian. And, you know, it does mean standing up to a loud and bullying minority. And unfortunately, and I, I say this sincerely, it really is unfortunate, we are not seeing the conservatives prepared to stand up to that anti vaxxing, hostile, bullying, aggressive minority. 
you know, as I said, Aaron O'Toole, he's not even prepared to say his candidates need to be vaccinated. How can he say with a straight face that hospital workers need to be vaccinated? Well, I, I mean, I guarantee there's going to be lawsuits uh, if for no other reason that I see that, you know, a, a certain deplorable right wing outlet uh, of activism that would so desire to be called a media outlet is already fundraising off the backs of the measures that Alberta announced yesterday, pushing back on those I mean, there's absolutely going to be opportunities for fundraising and, and, and public fervor uh, by right wing outlets to fund lawsuits that I think um, could become intimidated and ultimately quashed by the federal government's commitment to fight back. That's a more formidable opponent than pushing, as you know, uh, and I don't want to sit here and say I'm supporting your policy and all this. Uh, I, I should make the interview a little bit tougher than that. But I just have to say, if I own a deli or if I own a laundromat or whatever the case is, uh, I don't want to have to put myself at risk for getting sued because some outlet is fr- fundraising for my disgruntled former employee that's going to try to take me to the cleaners uh that worked out well with my dry cleaning but that was that was just a happy accident there but you know what i'm saying i think it's important to have that support so i support that one can i just can i just interject just a quick thought there um which is you're right and i'm glad to have you raise some examples of small businesses because it's just not fair to expect a small business on its own, say your local dry cleaner, your local coffee shop, to require that people are vaccinated to work there, to require that people wear a mask to come inside without giving them strong backing to do that. I think it's it's too frightening for them. And that's why they do need a supportive federal government that is prepared to be yelled at that is prepared to have obscenities shouted at it and is prepared to say, you know what? Um, The vast majority of Edmontonians, the vast majority of Albertans have done the right thing. My dad has done the right thing. My aunts have done the right thing. I want them to be safe and I want everyone in Edmonton to be safe. And so we're going to, we're going to do tough things, but necessary things. I know you have to go. I have to make this last question, but there's no way I can welcome you to the show and not ask you about the tweets uh, on August 22nd in English and French that contained edited footage of Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, quickly responding yes to a question about whether or not he would welcome private for-profit healthcare in Canada. As you know, obviously the video was edited. It didn't include his full answer and it prompted Twitter to add a tag of manipulated media, which I know was probably difficult for you to navigate. It was a national story for more than a week. Canada's elections commissioner has cleared you over those campaign tweets, essentially saying it was carefully reviewed and they're of the view that no offense was committed under the Canada Elections Act. As a result, the file now closed. Were you treated fairly by Twitter or did Twitter go too far? Um, so, look, Ryan, uh, the important thing for me is a decision by the Canadians who we empower to adjudicate these things. And as you said, the election commissioner looked at this, uh, made a ruling, said there was no offense committed and case closed. And the only other thing I would add uh, is that in the initial tweet, the full video was posted too. So there was absolutely no effort at concealment. There was no effort to mislead. And anyone who's still interested in this, I would just say, go back, look at the full video, 
you know, you decide whether you think that showed uh, a desire to bring in a two-tier healthcare system. Uh, I really personally believe so strongly that our healthcare system with equal access for everyone is one of the most important things about Canada. And, you know, what we're seeing in our fight against COVID just reinforces that. Originally from Peace River, Alberta, Christia Freeland has served as Canada's Deputy PM, Minister of Finance, currently running for re-election in the Toronto riding of University Rosedale in our home city of Edmonton today. We appreciate your availability and, and thanks for joining us again on Real Talk. It's great to spend time with you, Ryan, and thank you all healthcare workers in Edmonton and in Alberta. Um, I'm really grateful to you. Thanks very much, uh, Ms. Freeland. That's, uh, of course, Christia Freeland. Uh, thanks to those of you that have uh, taken the time to ask questions uh, for her on our live chat. I apologize. We couldn't get to them. She's got a busy day of campaigning going on. Um, interesting, I thought, Sarah, that she noted two writings in particular. Uh, she said, I'm here coming to you from Randy Boissonneau's campaign office in Edmonton Center. Uh, Randy Boissonneau, the former MP, as mentioned, of, co- of course, um, you know, looking to unseat James Cumming, who stole that seat from him last federal election, fair and square, obviously, uh, in 2019. And then Ben Henderson, who's running uh, against a longtime conservative MP, Tim Upple uh, in Edmonton Mill Woods. And so those are I, I don't think it's an accident that she mentioned those two writings and those two candidates. And um, and, and hey, listen, uh, let me. Here's some real talk too. If you're an NDP or a Green or uh, another supporter, you'd, a PPC supporter, you could probably come at me right now and be like, "Really? You're just going to name the Conservative and NDP candidates in those writings, Ryan? Really? Really?" Uh, but I think that those are where those horse races are going to go, and it's going to be interesting to see. Those are two writings to keep an eye on. The Liberals would like to state the very obvious. Uh, to be able to have a couple of MPs out of the province of Alberta as well. 2015, there were four of them. 2019, zero. And they'd like to make that return. I know that liberal supporters in Alberta, and there are some liberal supporters in Alberta, will make the argument that it's pretty important to have representation in cabinet or at least in caucus when decisions are being made by a federal government. So if you think the federal government's a liberal government, you're going to want to make sure that you have liberal MPs from Alberta. In so many ways, as other parties might make the same argument, why it's so important that they have representation, the conservatives maybe in the GTA or what have you. So it's a big and tall task. We'll only know what happens. And I'm going to catch myself even before I say it on Election Day. All signs are pointing to an inconclusive result uh, based on how many mail in ballots there are. Um, some of those, uh, you know, the, the real data hounds, the people that crunch the numbers and really understand how these trends go are suggesting that Canadians may not know uh, definitively the results of the federal election until the next day or maybe a couple of days later. Obviously, we will keep you in the loop here on Real Talk. Uh, that's when we're going to really ramp things up uh, on Monday and the days to come. Again, the federal election coming up four days from now. It is upon us. I'm really excited about on Monday, uh, you know, we've been having these really hard hitting, lots of different perspectives on the federal election. On Monday, we are having a panel of comedians. I'm so excited. Of Canadian comedians. But we're talking politics. To hash out the election. (laughs) This is going to be great. Do you want to reveal the panel yet or do you want to keep it a secret for now? Well, I can tell you one of I'll tell you one of them. Okay, tell us one of the three. Derek Seguin. Derek Seguin. Who is 
uh, French Canadian and he is hilarious and he's been on the debaters and he loves to just I told him in my email I'm like we're gonna take the piss out of it and he was like <laughs> sign me up <laughs> sign me up I'm looking forward to that this feels like a pretty good opportunity uh, Sarah you do an amazing job I know I get to sign my name to it but 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 let's be honest who really puts the work into our real talk Sunday message it's it's the editorial producer of this show if you go to ryanjesperson.com you will find out what our panel of comedians looks like who's going to be joining us before anybody else you go to our website and then check this out so you there's the link you can watch us live here's the link to our mixler live audio streaming of course you can download the mixler audio app as well and then here it is the sign up for our official newsletter we don't spam you we never give your information away to anybody else but you can sign up it takes two seconds you can unsubscribe at any time but every sunday evening we send you a message with some of the highlights from the week that was and then a look ahead to the week coming up every once in a while there's a a special offer or a promotion for you maybe advance access to something cool uh, and by the way i should note as well we, we barely ever say this but, but some people have reached out and said whatever happened to that sunday message you were going to send out and i've gone oh check your junk mail folder I got an email from someone that said, oh, my gosh, there they all are. So if you sign up every once in a while based on things I don't understand, it'll go into your junk email folder for check there. But you can sign up to our official Sunday message, the official newsletter at the bottom of the page at RyanJesperson.com. Our friends at Eden Landscaping want to remind you that though summer is coming to a close, it doesn't mean that they hang up their work boots and call it quits. They work through the fall and winter months, meeting with clients, taking a look at your Pinterest boards, or maybe going through ripped out pages of magazines, landscape, architecture ideas, and then, of course, applying it to your space. Bringing your outdoor space to life is what they do, taking your big ideas and turning them into reality. So whether it's hardscaping, like we were talking about yesterday, decorative patio stones, installations, edible garden boxes, retaining walls, Walls, outdoor kitchens, big boulders, because Mike loves carrying big boulders around. They can do it all, and they've been doing it, solving problems for people for 20 years. They don't stop until you're satisfied at Eden Landscaping. You can find them under the Sponsors tab on our website or at landscapeedmonton.ca. Also, a big shout-out to our friends at Local Waste. Trash Talk's coming up tomorrow. Local Waste presenting trash talk your opportunity to get something off your chest at least once a week the cathartic exercise the brainchild of the team that's been keeping it local for 25 years still family owned local waste operating in alberta and saskatchewan providing bins of different sizes based on a business's need they're driven by the core value of integrity so much so that the word is up on the wall at their head office you can learn more about them at local waste you know, we got a ton of emails and we wanted to leave time before we sign off for the day to give you the floor. Real talkers, we so appreciate when you take the time to share your thoughts with us. And that includes Nancy, who wrote in to talk at RyanJesperson.com, says, I, I did have a chance to catch your interview, Ryan, on Wednesday with with Dr. Talbot, the former chief medical officer of health. While he is a straight shooter and he strikes me as a man of integrity I do think he has a blind spot when it comes to Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Yes, the premier and the health minister are driving the bus. Absolutely, it is their responsibility that we're in this mess. Never, says Nancy, have I ever witnessed more irresponsible leadership in the country. But please do not forget 
that Dr. Dina Hinshaw made these recommendations that the government followed back in July. She made them. The caucus simply passed the recommendations. And Dr. Hinshaw stood in front of Albertans for months defending these recommendations, defending them boldly up until less than a week ago. And now suddenly she's surprised that we didn't have the best summer ever after all. This, in spite of the pleading and the begging and the screaming from medical professionals all summer. No, I do not accept a weak apology. And I don't believe that Alberta's chief medical officer of health has credibility. I don't give her credit for admitting she made a mistake to Alberta's doctors. 24 souls gone in the last 24 hours, says Nancy, for perspective. So while I do respect Dr. Talbot and his service in past in public health, I do believe he's biased when it comes to Dina Hinshaw. May I finish, though, by saying that his quote on the show that the IQ drops significantly when Dr. Dina Hinshaw leaves the room. If that's the case, then she's even more responsible for the illness, for the deaths, for the heartbreak, and for burnt-out healthcare workers. If she's so intelligent, then why did she drop restrictions in July? And why did she wait until mid-September to do something? Says Nancy, it didn't have to be this way. Randy was in touch. Randy says, can you believe the BS that was spouted last night by the premier? Jason Kenney saying they did everything in their power to protect the healthcare system. If that's the case, wonders Randy, then why did they wait so long? This whole situation was avoidable and he's a pandering jackass. And it's quite amazing to me that they can answer questions and stand behind a lectern for close to an hour and really say nothing of substance. Jason Kenney and his cabinet deserves to be treated as the most dangerous group out there. This is Trump North. That from Randy. Now, if Randy would have sent that tonight into tomorrow, that very well could have been read in a different tone of voice with a music bed of heavy driving rock and roll. Trash talks coming up as we wrap tomorrow's show. Also on the show, you don't want to mess with moms. That's right. We're going to talk to Dr. Lindsay Teds, one of the 50 signatories to that letter calling for parties to prioritize affordable health care. We'll learn more about further airstrikes in the Gaza Strip with Michael Kiefer, a professor out of the University of Guelph, and our Real Talk Roundtable with the strategists Zane, Corey, and Stephen, not to be missed. In the meantime, be well out there, Real Talkers. We'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson, editorial producer Sarah Hoyles, technical producer Sam Brooks, managing director Josh Dunford, account coordinator Tanya Franklin, merchandise operations Katie Cook-Chivers, website design Mike Johnston, voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.